This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with returned guest Eli Varney. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, TESSA. On this week's Insight segment of the show, as well as during my conversation with Eli, I'm going to be talking about the lessons that we can learn from failing a military school. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that our community can offer, and when it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and that can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to share four lessons that I learned from failing the U.S. Army Jumpmaster course. So the 82nd Airborne Division Advanced Airborne School Jumpmaster course is three weeks long. It took me six months to complete it. There's not a leadership course that doesn't talk about the lessons that can be learned by failing. Failure lets us know that we're not perfect. It helps us understand how not to get the job done and builds resilience and perseverance. I screwed up more times than I can count, but when asked about one of my biggest failures in my military career, I always point back to this one. There are some pretty big lessons that I learned during that year, ones that stuck with me over 25 years later. The first lesson I learned is that sometimes the best goals are ones that other people give you. I didn't want to be a jump master. Not really, not at the beginning. I wasn't alone in that either. You really didn't get any extra money for it. The jump masters were always running around doing stuff while everybody else put on their parachutes and took a nap while waiting to load the aircraft. No, I was in a unit with a large number of non-commissioned officers, but very few jump masters. Our first sergeant didn't like this. In the summer of 99, our unit had two jump masters, and it was supposed to have six. So he decided to assist us in obtaining the motivation to serve the unit rather than serve ourselves. To get into jump master school, you have to pass the jump master pre-test. This is a written test and the proper name of every item of equipment on the parachutist rig, and then a rigging test, which you had to properly assemble a rucksack, a release harness, and a lowering line. The written test is a 25-question test, but there are something like 150 or more different variations. Our first sergeant, in order to establish the appropriate motivation, decided to hold weekly leadership development courses. This was held on a Friday, after all the soldiers had been released, starting at 1700 or 5 p.m. First, we'd all be in the conference room and all have to take the nomenclature test. Not the 25-question test, but the 150-question test. After that, we'd be required to go outside and take the rigging portion of the test. This would typically take an hour, maybe more, if a bunch of us screwed up, which we did, weekly. The only way to get out of this torture was to take and pass the Jumpmaster pretest. We would then be excused from the weekly quote-unquote leadership development. Needless to say, I started studying my butt off and I took the pretest just to get out of the weekly training, which, I'm certain, was the entire point. The second lesson I learned was sometimes the goal that you're aiming at isn't the goal that you need. At about the same time, the 82nd Airborne Division had a bunch of slots to go to Pathfinder School. I may not have wanted to go to Jumpmaster School, but I sure wanted to go to Pathfinder School. I had a mentor who was a Pathfinder, and it was my goal to eventually get to Fort Campbell. 
My uncle had been in the 101st in Vietnam, and it was close to family. So not only was my first sergeant the master of the stick, he was also the master of the carrot. When he started getting our names for Pathfinder School, the old man decided, well, Pathfinder School does nothing for the company. It's good for you, but we're not going to use it. Nobody's getting on the list to go to Pathfinder School until you go to Jumpmaster School. And that was it for me. I'd passed the pretest. I had the incentive to go. I might as well make it happen. Third lesson I learned, and one that we'll talk a little bit in my conversation with Eli, is that running into a brick wall only makes you want it more. When I went to Jumpmaster School, and it might be the same now, Jumpmaster School was broken up into three weeks. You had the classroom portion, the Jumpmaster personnel inspection portion, and the aircraft portion. I did pretty well in the classroom portion, but like many, many other aspiring Jumpmasters, the Jumpmaster personnel inspection portion was my downfall. If I remember correctly, you had three chances to pass the test. You have to inspect three jumpers within five minutes, not missing any deficiencies identified as major, and only two identified as minor. With each successive no-go, my frustration level increased, as did my desire to succeed. After failing the first time through and being dropped from the course, I returned to my unit frustrated and defeated. The only question from that ever-present first sergeant was, when are you going back? By that time, I was all in. Wild horses could not have kept me away. The fourth lesson I learned is that you need to maintain awareness or you might miss success. It took another cycle for me to get back in the course. I had practiced my JMPI sequence in the meantime. My first sergeant knew some people who packed the parachute, so we got an extra one and rigged up a soldier so that we could practice. We gave him some comp time and I got some practice time. So now I'm back in Jumpmaster School. My motivation has been established, my failure smacked me in the face, and I never wanted anything more than I did at that time. When you come back into Jumpmaster School, you don't get three chances, you only get two, and I needed both. So there I was on the edge of failure again. I remember it plain as day. I was testing in between Fort Bragg's famous 34-foot towers. When I completed my last jumper, I stood there frozen. Did I miss anything? Did I not make it in time? The Jumpmaster instructor said, Jumpmaster, move in front of the second jumper. My heart sunk. I couldn't believe it. I was on the outer edge of my recycle window. If I wanted to come back, I'd have to do the whole course again. I moved in front of the second jumper. He said, take a look at his reserve parachute, Jumpmaster. At this point, I knew I was hosed. The only thing that could have been wrong with his reserve was a major malfunction, which means I missed it and failed. What do you see, he said. I bent over, gripping the reserve parachute so hard that it and the guy wearing it was shaking. I'm surprised that the heat from my gaze didn't make the thing catch fire. What do you see, Jumpmaster, he said. Through clenched teeth and an angry haze, I finally told him, I don't see anything, Jumpmaster. That's good, he said, because there's nothing there, Jumpmaster. At that moment, it hit me that he'd been calling me Jumpmaster the entire time. I'd passed. When I stood up, I'm not sure if he thought that I was going to crack him one or give him a hug. To this day, I'm still not sure which one I was going to do either. I stood there staring at him while the three soldiers that were inspecting were laughing at me. I probably had the goofiest grin plaster on my face, and he said, Get out of my testing area, Jumpmaster. I must have set a land speed record back to the classroom. You could tell which of us had made it and which of us didn't, and I was glad to be on the side of those that had. It was the most challenging school that I attended my 22 years in the Army, and rightfully so. It wasn't something to play with, and people's lives were literally at stake. From among my accomplishments in my career, the ability and responsibility to be a jump master is the one that I'm most proud of. And I didn't even want to do it in the beginning. So again, as we're going to talk about in my conversation with Eli, sometimes failing can lead us to greater success. So I'm glad to be able to share some of these insights. Agree? Disagree? Love to hear what you think. Share your thoughts with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Today's interview is with Eli Varney, a licensed professional counselor and currently serving officer in the Wyoming National Guard. Mr. Varney has been a clinical mental health counselor for service members, veterans, and their families for five years. He's also a military spouse and has had two combat deployments. 
Eli was a previous guest on the show, joining us back in episode six. Let's get into my conversation with Eli and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network resource of the week. So welcome back to the show. Uh, it seems to be a lot that we can talk about. Last time you were on the show, you talked about your own background. And for those of you who want to hear more, you can check out episode six. Today, you had a couple of topics that you wanted to share with the audience. First, uh, a conversation about resilience. Uh, for the past 10 years or so, this has been a buzzword, uh, especially in the military. But I'd like to hear about your thoughts on resilience and how it relates to the military and veteran population. Yeah, so the I'd say a common theme that you hear a lot within the military is with resilience, if you get bucked off the horse, you get back on. You know, that's kind of the mentality. And, and there are certain aspects of your life and my life that I find that it, that, that mentality is important. However, I'd say look at the deeper of the why. Why did I get bucked off that horse? Um, and so when you, when you tie that to the military, it's, okay, why am I going through this depression? You know, I was fine before I deployed and then I came home and things weren't as good as they used to be. Um, the... The military, I found, is a lot of times they get so focused on the easy fix, you know. So within therapy, we call it cognitive behavioral therapy of, you know, thoughts, feelings, behavior. I'm sad. um, I think different. I feel better. What I find to be a lot more effective is diving into the deeper, the problems, the foundational problems. And so the analogy that I like to use with this is, you know, picture a window in front of you and you know, that, that window has some cracks in the corners in the drywall. And what you do there is the, 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 the easy fix of resilience, you know, resiliency of bounce back, get off that horse is that sand down that drywall, mud it, paint it, and it's good for about a year. But I find a lot of times we need to make sure we're focusing on the foundational problems because in a year that crack is going to be back. And we need to make sure that we're focusing on the the root of the problem so that it can continue to get fixed and not not to negate resiliency in any way whatsoever but it's a it's a temp what i found is that it's a temporary fix to a long-term problem and um i think it's important to focus on the fixing the long-term problem so really the way the military does it it's a response to a negative event right so it's how are we going to respond to this negative thing Mm -hmm. if you get knocked in the dirt you get back up right are you going to bounce are you going to break but um it's that idea of it's usually post something bad and how do you repair from something bad whereas here you're talking about how do you address why it was bad in the first place yeah why it was bad and how you can prepare so that when that bad thing happens you're able to understand it more effectively. I read a study several years ago that talked about how PTSD is higher in um, veterans who are non-combat arms versus veterans who are combat arms. And what the article went on to discuss is that it's because of the training leading up to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the infantry world, you, know, you join the infantry to close the distance to destroy the enemy. Like that is, you're preparing when you're 17 or 18 and you join that you could be shot at and so the, uh, preparing for deployment that mindset is I need to be ready for this this will happen to me and on the flip side um, so my wife she was a um, 88 alpha or so a transportation officer and you know when when they joined it was hey you, 
your transportation and i think you were an 88 mike mm -hmm. too right mm -hmm. you know yep. hey you, sh you might you you'll, you're driving a truck um and i'm not saying this is you for example but you know a lot of the guys just joined to drive a truck i don't want to be shot i just i just want to serve my country do my job well and so they weren't mentally preparing for when suddenly hey oif or oef happened mm -hmm. and so it was more of a culture shock you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, um, and I split my career between um, uh, combat and non-combat, right? So I think 9-11 happened right when I was in for nine years. Uh, and when we deployed to Iraq and then even later to Afghanistan, um, us in the transportation field, and not just the transportation field, but a lot of the, the support MOSs had to go do things that they hadn't trained for before. And it was... Um, it, it was very much a, a relearning, right? Mm -hmm. um, unlearning almost everything that we had known before um, and, and learning how to do it in a different way. But what you're talking about is preparing for negative events ahead of when they happen. If you're an infantryman, uh, if you're in combat arms, I, I, when I recruited, I had a guy say, well, I want to I want to go to fight, but I want to drive to the fight. Well, that's a cab scout, right? That's, okay, not, yeah. a, that's not an infantryman. Um, but combat arms, they, they join the military understanding that they're going to be exposed and experience these traumatic things where you're right, especially pre 9-11. That really wasn't something that was discussed with non-MOSs. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so you're talking about the necessity to prepare ahead of time for when negative things happen rather than just react to them after they happen. Yeah. And that's that for me when I was coming home from my second deployment, um, that's one of the big pushes I made as a company commander was, hey, as you guys are getting ready to come home, you need to start mentally preparing for what does reintegration with your spouse look like? What does depression look like now when you're coming home? Because in the past it was, you know, get home and then we'll see what happens, you know. And, you know, so I had a lot of my guys, you know, make essentially you know, family safety plans of when I get home, this is what laundry looks like. This is what baby care looks like. Um, when I came home, I just had to talk. My son was two weeks old when I deployed. And so when I came home, you know, before I came home, I had to talk to her about what does his routine look like? Because if I would have just dived in head first without preparing for it, it would have made the reintegration much more difficult. But some of that is, well, you know, my plan for dealing with depression is to just not get depressed or my plan, yeah, yeah. you know, for anxiety or my plan for fighting with the wife is just I'm not going to fight mm -hmm. with the wife. And sometimes that's not really feasible no. um, in that we just, uh, our, our plan for the bad things happen is just assume they're not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, so let's use depression instead of just saying, hey, I'm just not going to get depressed. It's when I feel that sense of isolating, of shutting down, what am I going to do? Um, is it, am I the type of person that once needs to go on a walk in the woods to just recalibrate myself or Am I the, somebody that needs to reach out and talk to somebody one-on-one? -on -one? Um, or do I need to go to an AA meeting? Whatever that is, it's about having that plan in place ahead of time. So when that depression, when that anxiety hits, we have a plan in place. And we're not thinking, oh, I'm depressed. Well, I'll hunt the good stuff. And it's so much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. No, and, and I, uh, I was actually a master resilience trained okay. um, when I was in, in the Army. Um, went to University of Pennsylvania. That's where the Army sent um, a lot of people to go do that. 
Um, and I thought, and, and I was in my clinical studies also at that time, and I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we get back and we want to apply it in the units, we did to that training the same thing that we do to <laughs> eggs and potatoes, right? We mm -hmm. just boiled the crap out of it, and it just didn't, it, it was almost meaningless. Yeah. Because it really takes people's buy-in or, or even belief that these things are going to work. You can't yeah. just teach somebody, like you said, the techniques of hunt the good stuff. You have to change the way that they think about it. Uh, because if you don't do that, then they're just going to toss it out with everything else. Oh, yeah. And it's so and resiliency training can be a very effective tool if it's used correctly. You know, it's making sure that the right people such as yourself go through the training and that they believe the training that, you know, they're able to help other people see how that training can be helpful. Because there's certain times in my life where I have used the, you know, the, the resiliency program the Army teaches. It's you know, especially on deployments or on those, you know, those temporary parts of life where I'm like, I cannot think farther than an hour out. I have to hunt the good stuff. It, it can be an effective tool when it's used correctly, which is short term, not long term. Mm -hmm. But they, even that idea of, and, and obviously those who are in the military um, know this, is that temporary fix is good enough for right now yep. because when it starts to crack again, you're going to be at another duty station. You're somebody <laughs> yeah. else's problem, right? Yep. Or this building's falling down around me, but I'm only going to be in this building for another mm -hmm. year. Somebody else is going to occupy this. So the transitory nature of the military really lends itself to a very temporary fix. Mm -hmm. Only a series of temporary fixes over 15 years can really, again, going back to the crack analogy, the, the cracks are harder to paper over 15 years down the line. Exactly. And it's... Um it is a, actually a strength and a weakness of the guard as well. So, so I've been in the guard for a while now, and some of the guys that I've been with in the guard, we've been together 13 years, you know. And so they've seen my cracks, they've seen my my my, de my depressed parts of my life, they've seen the the rougher parts of my life, and so the strength is that they. So his name is Jesse. Jesse and I have been working together for 13 years. He can see when something's wrong. Doesn't he have to say because we've been together for so long. And that aspect is nice. Um, there's obviously some negatives to it. Everyone knows the good old boy system happens. And so that is the negative. But as far as like the camaraderie piece is, is extremely deep and beneficial because of that. I think, and especially maybe for current era veterans, um, that period of time, say between 2000, in 2014 or even later um, it was very much a come together quickly mm -hmm. establish that camaraderie quickly um, deploy quickly come back separate quickly I mean it was very much a constant turnover we we talk about the operational tempo but personality wise or just relationship wise um, when I got to Fort Carson in 06 I was like the the 20th person in a 150 person company by October of that year we were fully plussed up and deploying mm -hmm. within eight months um, establishing those kind of relationships, which again lends itself in, in, in perhaps a conventional military, and perhaps even in the guard where if you're mobilized, you're all thrown together and yep. then you're attached to other units and it has to be a very quick connection. Let's just, let's, you know, cellophane and, and you know, duct tape, let's mm -hmm. fix this temporarily and then move forward after that. And, you know, that, that is the way we deploy and I think that can be useful. And again, it's it's if they're taught the proper way to use resiliency, the proper way to 
you know, if that leader is noticing a deeper foundational problem, that they actually fix it instead of just washing over and saying, no, I'll, the next, this is the next commander's problem. This is the next first sergeant's problem. And, and I, I know me personally, but I know there's a lot of vets out there as well who, you know, wish they had that leader who was able mm-hmm. to do that, connect with them on that deeper level. And I think that's one thing, and as you said, could be a benefit, but a detriment in the military is there's a level of short-sightedness because we have the immediate mission. I mean, mm-hmm. Even the 300 meters, it's not all that far. Right? Yeah, We're no, gonna, no. You know, I could drive a golf ball that far, <laughs> right? Um, and so e- even if we talk about the longest range thing, it's, it's only several months out or, or at most a year out or something like that. Um, whereas... Um, and, and, you know, I work and you work very much with the Veterans Court. And I tell my Veteran Court clients is you're in this program for a year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm not worried about this year. I'm worried about you when you're 60 years old. Right. That's what the goal is, is the long term goal yeah. so that you can have the grandkids climb up your knee and you can tell them what's going on without having to have a shot of whiskey or a tear in your eye. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's going back to that foundational problem. It's the we we develop, I develop, I'll personalize it. I develop unhealthy coping skills when there is a foundational problem. Um, instead of, instead of like trying to fix the problem, that's where like the unhealthy of either drinking or mm-hmm. self-isolating things like that come in. So my, my hope to those, you know, that are listening today is that they're able to identify that, okay. And when I am isolating, when I am taking that shot of whiskey, when I think about my friend, how is that a foundational aspect of my life that I want to fix so that I don't have to rely on something external such as, you know, drinking or isolating. And I think that's a really great point. And, and, uh, when, when Shannon Kelly was on the show a couple of weeks ago, she had mentioned the same thing. Uh, and we had talked about how, unfortunately, some of these quick fixes work, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the drinking makes you forget or makes you stop feeling pain or, or these other unhealthy coping techniques. They work in the short term, just like papering the crack of resilience, yep. you know, um, getting up off of the mat once you get knocked down. But in the long term, they're ultimately destructive, um, as is not addressing the fundamental problems with the foundation. Yeah, and you're, you're spot on there. Yeah. So one of the things that, 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 you know, we do know that the military does do well is train and, and prepares us to endure hardship, right? That's, that's really what we're talking about is, you know, you, it's easy to say get back up on the horse, but you have to be trained or mm-hmm. have to, number one, you got to get knocked off the horse yeah. before you can ge- learn how to do that, uh, which is both a form of psychological and physical resilience. You experienced two of the United States Army's most challenging training courses, the Sapper Leader Course and Ranger School. What lessons did you learn in these schools that you think veterans can apply in their daily life after the military? So I'm actually going to back up a little bit on the, on those two schools because, you know, kind of, you know, like how we were just talking about, you know, understanding the why. Um, so I actually failed both those schools initially. So mm-hmm. I failed Sapper School in 2013, and then I went back in 2014 and graduated. Um but I will never forget the uh, at Sapper School. You go through 28 days with not knowing if you passed or not, and at the end of the 28 days, they separate you into three groups: those who passed, those who didn't, and those who have to retrain on um, one of the areas. And I got pulled into the failure group, and I remember, you know, they're like, "Hey, all right, you guys all failed. You're never here. 
there's no 1059, see ya. And I, I was able to talk to the, the E7 who evaluated me because I was curious why, what happened. And I'll never forget what he said because he essentially looked at me and said, you don't inspire me as a leader, so you don't deserve to have the tab. And it wasn't in a tab protector kind of mentality. It was I wasn't showing those skills. And so, you know, a couple months after that, I was, you know, down, depressed, and um, I actually deployed not too long after that. And I remember there was like a switch that came in my mind of like, okay, this was an awful experience. How can I make this experience better? You know, um, so over that next, you know, 10 and a half months deployed, it was how can I how can I be a leader? He told me that I wasn't a good leader because I wasn't leading from the front is honestly what it boiled down to. And he was 100% right. I did not want to accept it then. Um, but, you know, I, I went back after that. It was an awful experience again. But at least this time I, you know, I passed and I made it through. Um, and then with Ranger School, I went in 2016 and I failed actually at the pre-Ranger course at RTAC. I failed on the land nav course. And what I found with this course is that it boiled down to not being fully invested. Because at the time I was, I was an XO of the infantry company and I was on the edge of getting out. I didn't really, I didn't really care. My heart wasn't in it. Um, and so, I, and I remember when I failed, I just kind of sat on the ground. I was like, well, guess I'm getting out of the military. Mm-hmm. I was in, I was in at 11 years at that point, right? At that like hump of, do I really want to do this for another nine? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. And I kind of went through the same process again of, it started to eat at me. I started to have dreams at night of, of failing and it bothered me. I'm like, okay, how can I help overcome this? And what I came to realize again is if I want to overcome this regret, then I essentially have to remap my brain. You know, I have to put a positive experience on top of it. And the only positive experience I could think of was go back and this time pass. And so I went back in 2018 and, and I was fortunate enough to be a, a first time go. Cause there's, there's a lot of luck for anybody who's listening. There's a lot of luck at Ranger school. Don't yeah. A lot of luck. So made it, made it through first time go. And then it, it was fascinating to feel the difference of mapping over past mistakes to make, you know, certain like negative gut feelings in my stomach go away. Um, so I tell that long spiel to talk about what I learned and what I learned, I would say the importance of when we do go through bad experiences of getting help to overcome them. Um, especially at Sapper school, I was very much an individual. I mean, I was, I was a cocky SOB. I was not, not doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and especially that school was very team mm-hmm. school. If, if I, it's not me who gets my go, it's my buddies who get my go. And and I was much more focused on me, and that just doesn't work. Um, earlier, earlier I was talking about self-isolating, and 
you know, there's sometimes a balance where people want to be alone for a little bit, but we need people in our lives to help feel fulfilled, to help us when we are feeling down, when we're feeling uh, incongruent, for lack of a better word. That's very interesting. I think that easy wins are easy, mm-hmm. um, but they can also be cheapened, right? You know, if if it's if you hadn't um, maybe experienced that at, at, at the Sapper Leader course, um, maybe you know, and if you would have been a first time go at Ranger School, it wouldn't have meant as much, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I, I tell similar stories. Um, and I'll share it during the, the, the insights. I shared it during the insights here, too, is, is I've got something that's a, a lessons failing Jump Master School. Jump Master mm-hmm. School was a three-week course that took me seven months to graduate, <laughs> right, um, just because of a series of things, right? It, but but it, it was ultimately like the struggle was sweeter um, for having persevered through the hardship. Um, and I think for a lot of service members and veterans in post-military life, the hardship can feel overwhelming, but there isn't the drive through that hardship to get to the success. Exactly, and that's um, that's why I find it really important for veterans to have that healthy group to rely on because you know they, they may be going through a certain struggle, and they they look at let's say it's a client of mine that's like, oh, you know, Eli, you're doing great, and blah 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 me being real with them and saying, no, you know, I've, I've been in those awful, th- these are the awful experiences I've been through. I, being able to relate and empathize is so important because we start to compare ourselves to others saying, well, this guy is here, I'm here, I'm never going to get to this higher level. And it's important to know that I have failed in the past. Um, with, with my soldiers now, I do talk to them about that. When I had a good friend uh, fail pathfinder and i pushed so hard for him to go back and he eventually went back and and graduated because you know him and i were able to talk about hey this is how failing has affected me but failing is a normal part of life and this is how we can you know take that next step that idea of rewriting a negative event Mm -hmm. right Uh, because whatever event whatever outcome it's already written right mm-hmm. so so you failed sapper leader course and so that was written that's what it was yeah. um you could have anticipated that that was just going to be the way it was and and that's it right yeah. um you know ranger school at that point in your career you know there's a point in the middle of the night where you're equal distance from eat whatever light right so you're like it's going to be i just went through 11 years if i do another nine years um but that was what was written, but your choice was, am I going to allow this to be the truth or am I going to change it and create another truth by going back and making this just be a part of the journey? Yeah, and that's, I would say that's a big lesson to pass along to veterans is, at the end of the day, we all have the choice on what we decide to do. And am I going to let this choice of, um, negative experiences control my life you know it's been controlling my life for nine years am i going to let it control my life for the next 30 years and and it isn't an on off switch it's not an easy it takes months and sometimes years before it results are able to be seen but like you said earlier that struggle is what makes it so much sweeter being able to um overcome it and know hey i've I've accomplished, I, I have, 
I want to say beat depression, but that's the wrong phrase. You know, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I, I've been able to implement these healthy coping skills and I understand my triggers that, uh, help me deal with the depression in my life. Uh, having that end result is very much sweeter that we can enjoy. Yeah. I, I had a, I was attending a panel one time and this was a, a, a number of young student veterans actually is, is what the, the panel was about. But one of the young men, a Marine, uh, he said, uh, success doesn't mean happy every day, mm-hmm. right? It, success doesn't mean, you know, a, a, an entire pathway laid out in front of you because we all know that at some point something bad's going to happen and it's going to knock us on our on our butt. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with myself, your host, Dwayne France. Today, my guest is Eli Varney, licensed professional counselor with the Family Care Center. So we've been talking a little bit about how veterans can apply lessons they learn to the, in the military to bring success in post-military life. A lot of times we have internal values and mindsets that can be beneficial, like adaptiveness and resilience. But there are also some things that were part of the military mindset that veterans may need to let go of, sort of like that short-term solution mindset um, that they may need to let go of some of that stuff when they get out. Um, so what I was thinking about when I was looking at this earlier is that Sometimes it's not about necessarily letting go. It's about harnessing it in a in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. So let's use compartmentalization, for example. It's the Army is great at teaching you how to compartmentalize. You know, oh, hey, you and your wife just got a, in a fight this morning. Cool. Um, you have to leave PT still, by the way. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, and so or not sorry at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry at all. So we so we take that. Um, okay, I just had a fight with my wife. I'm going to put it in this corner and I will deal with it later. But most of the time we don't come back to deal with it later. Compartmentalizing is a coping skill that it can be unhealthy if it's used incorrectly because you were just ignoring the problem. Um, so instead of just saying, don't, Dwayne, just don't compartmentalize. It, it doesn't work that way. How can we use it in a healthy way? And that's um, in, in EMDR, I would, you know, I, uh, eye movement desensitization, it's a hard word, uh, reprocessing, uh, we talk about a container exercise. And the container exercise is essentially when, when those traumatic um, memory is coming up, instead of just compartmentalizing it, what we do in therapy is we are able to envision telling that let's call the feeling just a, a hurt emotion telling that hurt emotion that I see you and that I'm going to continue to work on you. And then in the next session, we work on that again, because with compartmentalizing, we just put in the corner, never touch it again. And then when a significant, a significant event happens, it's like somebody knocks over the wall. So like what's happening in that in Afghanistan, you know, so, so many of us have been just been putting that compartmentalizing everything in a corner and then situation in Afghanistan happens and our wall of compartmentalized products is now falling over. So what the container exercise allows us to do is see the memory, process it in a healthy way. So not that it's compartmentalized, but it's, it's healed. Um, the, the analogy I give a lot of my clients when I'm doing EMDR work is that these traumatic memories that we've gone through is a festering wound that's sitting in the back of our head. And through, through EMDR, through therapy in general, we help bring the memory forward in a healthy way. We cauterize it 
and then we send it back because the trauma we've gone through doesn't it isn't gone but instead of a festering wound it's a scar so it's not holding us back as much um i think last time you know we you and i talked about you know i still i mean if i see kerns on the side of the road i still don't like it because mm-hmm. those are the marking points uh for explosions before it used to be like an eight for me to bother me now it's it's a 0.5 mm-hmm. and so that's a fester wound that has become a mostly healed scar and so i think that's very important for people to understand that you know therapy is not about erasing negative memories or um turning bad memories into happy memories you can turn bad experiences into good experiences we talked about before with, mm-hmm. with failure but but the things in the past and and you know one of my favorite quotes from Irvin Yalam is how long are we going to wish for a better past we can't yeah. wish for a better past the past is the past so it's not about turning the bad memories it's not meaning it's not turning the cairns from IED markers to ice cream cones mm-hmm. right in in because that would just be absurd mm-hmm. it's taking the emotional weight of what the the Karen's meant and just removing that it's still a bad thing it's just not as bad or as debilitating as it was before exactly and um you know kind of tying what you were talking about earlier about the uh you know short-term thinking and how next duty station next commander whatever it is is uh to help with that thought process is it's an outlook change that i've made probably over the past almost a year now and it's about 10 years, you know, my 10 year outlook on life. What is that going to look like? Uh, and it's, this sounds cheesy, but it's, I've tied it to a lot of decisions I make now is, okay, I'm speeding. What does, what does speeding do for me in 10 years? Well, you know, if I got in a wreck and now, now I'm not here for my son and my wife, that's a pretty big negative effect. Um, and so the, this is the retention spiel I give a lot of my guys when they are wondering if they want to get out or not. I ask them, where do you see your life in 10 years? You know, well, I'm, I'm with my wife. I'm doing this job. Okay, is the military part of it? And you know, if they say no, I'm like, well, that kind of gives you your answer with which route you want to go. Because, um, like, let's say, you know, somebody spends 20 years in the military, which that's a, that's a chunk of our life, right? Mm-hmm. However, I plan to be alive to 106. Mm-hmm. That's just a fifth of my life. And so when I help, you know, you know giving that military mindset and adjusting it, it's, it's not about sh- focusing on the short term. What is better long term for my family? You know, it, before it used to be, well, what's my next duty station? But now it's what is the right thing for my family? If it's the right thing for me and my family to stay in, then heck yeah, let's stay in and make the best of it. But if it's not because it's wearing me down, then there's nothing dishonorable with getting out. You served your time, you did it well. And what I found is that speaks to people a lot more effectively than, hey, here's some money to stay in kind of mentality. I think one of the things, and, and I, rec- I looking back at my time in the military, I never seriously considered what life after the military is. Once mm-hmm. you're inside the machine, you can't conceive of being outside the machine, yeah. right? You know, uh, big space symposium here. You hear about astronauts being in space looking back on Earth, but we can't conceive of Earth, yeah. right? Because we're in the Earth or on the Earth. And so 
when you're in the military, there's this brick wall or wall of fog beyond whatever that, if you plan on getting out after eight years or 20 years, you really don't conceive of what life may be like after that because it's, again, it's all a series of short-term, three to five years, what's it going to be like for me? What do I need to do to get promoted or whatever? But you're exactly right. I was in for 20 years or 22 years. I'll be a veteran three times as long as I was Mm -hmm. a soldier. Those who were in for three to five years will be on 10, 15 times longer. They'll be a veteran than they were a soldier. Um, But still there's this, it's a small part of our life, but it's a very significant part of our life. Yeah, it it is very significant. And it's the, the piece that I would give to veterans to continue to think about is what is life after the military? Whether you do 20 or you do four, it doesn't matter. What is life after? Am I going to be a real estate agent? Am I going to be a counselor? Am I going to be a teacher? Whatever it is, because a, a lot of veterans struggle with purpose of, well, they struggle with purpose after the military because while you're in, it's, you know, they tell you what to wear, what to eat, mm-hmm. uh, right place, right time, right uniform, all of that. And... A lot of times when we leave, it's what does this transition look like? Um, and it's important to begin to think about those things now, whether you're going to get out in six months or 10 years of what do I want to be so that we continue to think about that so we have that purpose. Uh, Victor Frankel, who's the father of logotherapy, you know, wrote several books, but you know, Man's Search for Meaning is one of his most popular. And in there, he essentially talks about the importance of uh, purpose and identity make us who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if I came up to you and said, you know, hi, what's your name? The very next question I ask is, what do you do? And so when veterans get out and, you know, they you know, say, yeah, my name's Eli. And the next question is, what do you do? And there's just silence. We lose that purpose and identity. And if there's, again, going back to pre-planning and helping line these things out before it's a problem, that is a great way is, is by preparing of what do I want to do. And again, I think that's a, a really big thing that people don't realize the military gives you that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, not, that's not on the recruiting posters. It's not no. Uncle Sam wants you to have a purpose in your life, right? Yeah. Um, but, but that's one of the beneficial things that goes along with military service uh, another thing that was beneficial and even necessary when we were in the military was the collective culture. The, again, that group identity, um, the, interdependent, the interdependence on others. Once we leave the military, that kind of goes away. Many veterans say that's the hardest thing about not being in the military anymore, not having that group of people mm-hmm. around that you're familiar with. That's another thing that you found really necessary for the clients you work with. Oh, yeah. It's... Um tribe is a word I use a lot when I'm working with my clients is who is part of your tribe, you know, whether, um, you know, whether it's a client's, uh, church group, whether it's, you know, uh, Phoenix multi-sport downtown, whether it's operation TBI freedom, it's what group of people do you surround yourself with? And we have, I'll personalize it again. I have to have some sort of camaraderie to feel fulfilled in my life. And, I find that's that's true with a lot of veterans and it's it's not like hey I'm looking for somebody to hang out with all day every day it's who's somebody I could call when I want to go fishing when I want to go on a hike uh, something like that Um, about five months ago I started a a hiking group through Family Care Center with a lot of my clients who are veterans and it was fascinating to watch the positive change begin to happen because 
it, it wasn't we, we weren't doing you know, 10 minute miles while you know carrying 40 pound packs and things like that but it was just let's get in the woods and be together as a tribe of veterans who need some additional support and watching these guys just continue to to grow and connect has been invaluable uh, for them uh, I, I had an injury so there was about five weeks where I wasn't able to do the the group and I started getting emails and they're like hey uh, we need to start doing this again I need I need some camaraderie and I need it they need it and so we need to find a way to always continue to help support each other during 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 those times and it doesn't necessarily mean just other veterans as you've mentioned no, right no. finding a group i have a colleague that that works a lot with um with with college students right you know student veterans uh, he's a veteran himself like us a, a clinician but he specializes in working with veterans returning to school uh, and he would say that uh, he would see veterans that just got out of the military. They're still wearing their 9-11 gear. Like yeah. their, their clothes were just pulled out of the duffel bag. They got the big freedom beard, right? And he said that he could tell after about 18 months which were going to make a transition and which weren't. Because the ones that this were going to make a transition, they started hanging out with other economists or mm-hmm. other pre-med or other theater, right? You know. Maybe they still had a beard, but it was it was it was more groomed, right? Yeah. They they started dressing differently. They they made a shift away from this is my military identity, and those that maintained sort of a military identity past that eighteen months, two years, usually didn't continue on in school because there was still this matter of trying to cling on to this very important time in my life and not making a transition to my post military life. Yeah, and that that is crucial. It's the I'd say balance is another piece that uh, you know going back to the the last question of you know advice taking it from the military world to this world and then also tying to this with having that tribe of whatever it is you know after we get out it's it's not army 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 all the time and we we have to make sure we have that balance whether it is like I said whether it is church or whether it is you know, future farmers of America or whatever kind of program it is, we have to find that balance in life because if we just expose ourselves to one small fraction, then in my mind, we're missing the bigger perspective of the other options that are out there. Yeah. And and that goes, and you were talking earlier about, you know, isolation. And I often describe the difference between isolation and solitude, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we can go enjoy solitude. We can go enjoy you know, being alone in the woods, so to speak. But if we're being alone in the woods because we're afraid of connecting with community, that's not solitude, that's isolation, yeah. right? Um, and so really the staying connected to a group, whether, you know, a tribe, the military gave that to us, oh, right? Yeah. The military gave you your buddy that you've yeah. known for 13 years, yeah. right? Um, in that as an adult, it's hard to make friends anyway, unless you're in some sort of professional or group setting or things like that. And so that's one thing that's a need that veterans have to learn after the military is how do I find my tribe? Because mm-hmm. in the military, it was given to me, yep. whether I wanted to or not. This is your team, squad, platoon. How do yeah. I find that now afterwards when nobody's plopping me in the middle of a group of people and saying, you guys got to get along? Uh, so, again, I'd say that this goes back to it's planning ahead of time. Mm-hmm. You know, the the best transitions that I've seen with people is the ones who – you know, before they get out, they're beginning to plan, hey, I want to get into real estate. 
they begin taking those real estate classes online before they get out. You know, they, um, if, if they want to become a doctor, they begin preparing before they get out so that when that transition happens, it's not, it's, it's not just a bam, now you're out, go figure it out. It's a much smoother transition because the, the process of, of getting out and, and I don't want to bash it too much, but the SFL tap program, it's a lot of times we just feel like a number going mm-hmm. through. So preparing on our own ahead of time helps that transition um, so that we feel more genuine instead of just a number. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you coming back on the show again today. Um, Definitely always appreciate having conversations and providing these insights. So thanks for coming back. Thank you. It was great being here again. So I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Eli. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you will drop us an email at militarymind at FCCsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, TESA. TESA was established in May of 1977 to address the high frequency of calls to regional law enforcement from women threatened or assaulted by their partners. At the time, domestic violence was considered a private matter, and resources were difficult to locate if they existed at all. With assistance from the 4th Judicial District Attorney and El Pomar Foundation, TESA began as an information provider and resource referral service. The initial effort has evolved into a multifaceted agency that serves more than 10,000 victims each year by providing a confidential safe house shelter, victim support services, counseling, children's program, a 24-7 safe line, housing assistance, and legal representation. They've developed from a hotline for women facing domestic violence to a mini-pronged agency serving all people facing abuse, sexual violence, stalking, human trafficking, and intimate partner violence. Through these services and concentrated outreach and concentrated outreach education efforts, TESA strives to realize the vision of a safe community free of personal violence where all people can thrive. Victim services are the core of TESA's work and along with community education, they comprise the foundation of their mission-focused programming. TESA's first priority is the safety of clients, followed by the provision of support, information, and resources that empower survivors and create safe and self-sufficient lives for themselves and their families. TESA is also the only completely confidential provider of survivor services in the Pikes Peak region, and all employees go through 36 hours of training to receive certification and confidential victim advocacy before moving into their specific programs. Those programs include a recently renovated 36-bed safe house, which provides emergency shelter and support to female victims and their children. Safe shelter is provided to adult male victims and their children through vouchers to local lodging establishments. TESA also offers a Housing First initiative, which provides housing and wraparound support services to victims and their families in a state of homelessness or at high risk for homelessness due to the abuse that they experienced. Once clients have secure, safe lodging, TESA's other programs can help them regain stability. The children's program serves more than 400 residential and non-residential children who have witnessed violence and or been victims each year through case management, individual counseling, play therapy, mentoring, and psychoeducational support groups. Project LIFT helps pair survivors with legal representatives and advisors for hearings on permanent protection orders, while TESA's specialized clinical department offers group and individual counseling to help victims move past the lasting psychological effects of trauma. Through the entire recovery process, confidential victim advocates provide advocacy, systems assistance, court support, and community resources and referrals for victims. However, facilitating recovery is only half the battle, so TESA also works hard to prevent domestic violence and sexual assault in the first place. Representatives are available to any group requesting a presentation about domestic violence and sexual assault and or an overview of TESA's services. 
Specific topics include dynamics of domestic violence and sexual assault, teen dating violence, and bystander intervention training. Tessa works hard to destigmatize assault for survivors, teach people how their cultural conditioning may play a role in assault, empower individuals to support survivors in their communities, and to demonstrate and explain healthy relationship dynamics so that this community can learn to prevent domestic violence and sexual assault before it ever occurs. Unfortunately, the vision of a community free of violence is still a long way off. Sexual assault rates in Colorado Springs are still nearly double the national average, and, as you can imagine, shelter-in-place guidelines have aggravated many already dangerous domestic situations and providing the spark to turn abusive environments explosive. In 2020, calls to Tessa's safe line increased by as much as 50% per month, bringing what normally goes on behind closed doors into stark relief. At a time when communities turned inward to find safety and security, Tessa Advocates got a harrowing glimpse of how many people in our region found only a different kind of threat waiting within their own homes. Despite this disheartening data and reduced resources, Tessa's team pivoted to accommodate the new reality, finding socially distanced housing solutions to supplement the limited safe house, building out telehealth options to bring remote counseling to those in need, offering digital legal options and online advocacy systems, and even managed to launch a new department working against human trafficking in the area. When all is said and done, the agency worked with nearly 17,000 clients in the past 18 months, developing brand new ways to serve those who need it most, providing that even in complicated times, survivors can turn to Tessa for support on their journey to healing. If you or someone you know needs support to deal with sexual assault, stalking, human trafficking, domestic violence, or an otherwise physically or emotionally abusive relationship, Tessa is here to help. The Safe Line is staffed 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. To speak to an advocate, dial 719-633-3819. Tessa has bilingual advocates as well as specialists in military affairs, Title IX violations, and LGBTQ support. All survivors are welcome, and furthermore, all information provided to Tessa's team is kept confidential. If you need support, don't hesitate to reach out. For less urgent cases, their website, tessacs.org, offers non-emergency contact numbers as well as many resources to identify unhealthy dynamics and warning signs, as well as educational resources for understanding consent, recognizing the cycles of violence common in abusive relationships. Information about donations and volunteer opportunities can also be found on the website. Tessa believes in a community free of violence where all people can thrive and works to realize that vision every single day. Thank you for your support of that vision, and if you feel you're not included in that world, don't wait to pursue the safety and security you deserve. So I appreciate the opportunity to bring you the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find them at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They provide you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'll be great to hear your feedback. Like to answer any questions you might have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind. 
addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family, caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.